0: hello america and welcome to a new edition of john solomon reports the podcast from just the news where today we've got a big guest alan dershowitz the great lawyer the great scholar the great professor you see him on tv fox news and many other places he's an eloquent voice and a consistent voice in the in the fight for free speech which today in cancel culture and in the censorship of uh, social media platforms uh, we need more than ever and so we're going to talk to alan about all of those things from the Supreme Court and Amy Coney Barrett, to his new book, Cancel Culture, the latest attack on free speech and due process, to his podcast, The Dir Show, which comes with the wits. You get it? The Dir Show wits. Um, and uh, uh, a very important discussion about what's going on in college campuses, social media firms, and other places where uh, censorship, cancel culture, and uh, one party mob rule. Are beginning to dominate. Uh, Alan has a lot of great ideas, and uh, we're going to talk about them. We want to talk about not just the problem, but are there solutions? Do we go to court? Do we go to trade regulatory regulations? Where is the recourse for Americans who are finding themselves silenced in this moment of cancel culture? in one-party mob rule. All right, but before we get to that, we got some breaking news on the Ukraine front that I want to get to. This is an exclusive story. You're getting it first on John Solomon Reports before it shows up on justthenews.com in a couple hours. Uh, it's just something we want to do to thank you for your loyal listenership. So we're going to go to that quick commercial break. When we come back, a couple quick scoops on uh, Ukraine and, and the Hunter Biden scandal. And then we're gonna to go to our interview with Alan Dershowitz, the great Harvard lawyer, the great constitutional scholar, the great advocate for free speech. But first, let's get a message in from our great advertisers and sponsors. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, we're just minutes away from our interview, our exclusive interview with Alan Dershowitz. He's got a new book coming out. He's got a great podcast. But most importantly, he has a lot of thoughts about how we're going to battle this era of cancel culture and censorship that is uh, waving across America in ways that I think is detrimental to our society, to our democracy, to our constitutional republic. And we're going to talk to Alan about that. Not only what is the problem, But what is the solution or solutions? Um, But uh, first, I want to give you a couple of heads up. I'm going to give you a tip. I have a funny feeling if you tune in to Tucker Carlson tonight, you may hear the first audio tapes. Keep in mind, we've already had text messages from Hunter Biden. We've had State Department FOIA documents about Hunter Biden. We've had emails from and about Hunter Biden. We've got a lot of paper. And a lot of uh, text and a lot of uh, phone communications about Hunter Biden and his business relationships across the country. But what we haven't had are video and audio tonight. I'm hearing that on the uh, Tucker Carlson show, when Tony Bobulinski, the former uh, business partner, associate CEO of a China seeking or China business seeking company that Hunter Biden was involved with in 2017. We may hear the first audio tapes of Hunter Biden talking about the family business. And I, I encourage you to stay tuned to that. We'll have all the developments on justadnews.com. Of course, you can watch Tucker's show on Fox News if that's helpful as well. But we're going to cover it for you and sort it all out uh, as soon as the news breaks. But that's what I'm being told by good sources and important sources. Secondly, uh, a lot of people are saying, How do I make sense of all of this Ukraine, China, Kazakhstan, Russia business? It's making my head spin. There's got to be a simple way to share to my friends why I think this matters. Well, uh, Newt Gingrich has just put out a new YouTube video. It's up on our website, justinnews.com. It kind of boils down the issues in the Biden family business scandal uh, and why uh, you may um, uh, want to uh, share it with your friends. It kind of makes it simple. It breaks it down in small bites. Uh, it's a 30-minute videotape. It's on YouTube, but uh, it breaks down the issues in four, five, six, seven very simple bites and help you understand why it should matter why it should matter even if you just support joe biden why it matters that these issues are a problem so encourage you to see that that's up on justinnews.com our story with rick grinnell the former dni predicting audio tapes are about to come out of hunter biden that'll be coming out tonight you can check that out daniel Payne has that on the website please check it out and um and be there Now, uh, I promised you one exclusive story that you're going to get first here on John Solomon reports before we put it up on just the news and here it is. We have been working for quite some time uh, to get this information uh, confirmed, but we now can confirm that Hunter Biden's work at Burisma, the Ukraine company with the wrong record of corruption, a gas company uh, also involved a deal in Kazakhstan that his compensation was tied to. So in 2014, while his dad was vice president, while uh, Burisma Holdings was under corruption investigation in Ukraine, he and his business partner helped facilitate uh, a gas deal in in neighboring Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is another one of the Soviet, former Soviet republics like Ukraine. Uh, It uh, it also has a history of corruption and strong armed men and other things. Um, And yet, Uh, Hunter Biden and and Devin Archer apparently facilitate with their boss, Mykola Zolchevsky, the owner of Burisma, a man accused of corruption in Ukraine, though never convicted. Uh, And they they set up this deal. And what is really unique about it is that in 2017, fast forward three years ahead, by that time, Hunter Biden's collected four million dollars with uh, his partner, uh, Devin Archer, from Burisma. We know that from the Senate report, from the FBI records that were obtained from Hunter Biden's company. So Burisma was worth $4 million to him in the first couple of years. We now know that uh, Hunter Biden was fighting to keep his money, the spigot of money flowing from uh, Burisma. That's important because it kind of suggests it was in jeopardy, right? And it's in jeopardy maybe because Joe Biden's no longer in power. He's no longer... In, uh, in a position to have influence or affect policy. And Hunter Biden is um, uh, worried he's about to lose his money. How do we know this? There are text messages between him and Tony Bobulinski, uh, the, C- the CEO of this venture called Sina Hawk. Uh, that was uh, the Biden family and Tony and some other investors, Rob Walker and others, trying to put together a deal with China. Uh, a Chinese company in communist China. Um, And uh, while that's going on, Bob pressing Hunter Biden saying, hey, where are you in getting these deliverables done on the China deal? And he finds out that Hunter Biden is not working on the China deal. He's working on an old Burisma deal, trying to save the Kazakhstan um, deal. He he finds out that he's actually on a yacht with uh, Mikola Sochevsky, the owner of uh, Barisma trying to salvage this uh deal and he texts back these are a direct quote you can hear them from me first you're going to read them on just the news first um but here it is um it starts with an expletive he's mad at tony uh Bobulinski for pressing him he goes f you tony i wasn't asleep and those guys uh, those guys work for the ukrainians and they think they haven't left my room, that I haven't left my room in three days. I was on Nikolai's boat arguing about my position in their Cossack deal and it was heated. I couldn't call because I was fighting for the only income I have left right now from Burisma. It was very heated and very tense and and an extremely unavoidable meeting negotiation that had a lot more at stake than me meeting you to say I'm not sending that letter to the chairman under any circumstances. All right, I want to give you that one line that matters. Let's get the exact word. It was very heated, very tense, and extremely avoidable. Um, I wasn't asleep. He's talking about the criticism he had gotten. I was fighting to keep the only money I have left right now from Burisma. Let me read that again. I couldn't call because I was fighting for the only income I have left right now from Burisma. This is in June of 17. It's in a period when... um, Joe Biden's been on office five years. Hunter Biden's already gotten three, four million dollars out of Burisma. And he's worried that the gravy train uh, that started when his father was vice president may be coming to an end. Very important uh, revelation that kind of Fills out why you should care about the Hunter Biden, Brisma, Ukraine scandal. Not only was it a conflict of interest for Joe Biden to continue to oversee anti corruption action, anti corruption policy in Ukraine for the United States while his son was working for a company under corruption investigation, uh, it also raises the possibility that the only reason Hunter Biden was getting these gigs uh, was because of the proximity of his father to power, and that when that proximity waned, Joe Biden left office with just a normal Joe again, not the second most powerful man in the world. Uh, the, the willingness of these foreign entities to keep paying him seemed to wane, at least in the case of Brisma. As he said, it was a heated discussion. He was fighting for his only left, only money he had left from Brisma. A very important revelation, a very important story. Uh, you're going to get it on justthenews.com this afternoon. You've got it first. As a loyal listener to this great podcast, I'm so grateful. Thank you for your support. Thank you for joining us every day when we go live with our new newest podcast. So, all right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, yes, it is time for Alan Dershowitz, the great lawyer, the great scholar, the great champion of free speech and due process, uh, here to talk about cancel culture, his own run-in with it, how he's been shunned on uh, Martha's Vineyard by his old liberal friends, And what we can do about it to change the us versus them cancel culture mentality, the censorship mentality in America. We're going to come right back to that right after this commercial break from our great advertisers and our great sponsors. Hey folks, have you heard of cancer fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, somebody whose impact on the law and on on the public dialogue is humongous. It's Alan Dershowitz, the great Harvard Law professor, the great New York Times bestselling author, the great lawyer. And of course, you see him on Fox News and many other programs all the time. Professor Dershowitz, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm a fan of yours and of your podcast, so it's an honor to be on with you.
0: Well, I I'm uh, I'm listener number 1 on The Dursch Show. You're a great podcast and uh, folks, if you uh-huh. haven't subscribed to it, you got to get it on Apple. It's fantastic. Uh I, must I appreciate listen.
1: it. It's The Dursch Show. The only thing it lacks is wits, and that comes from <laughs> my listeners. You bring the wits to the show and then we have The Dursch Show Wits. I so love it. We are.
0: I love it. That's uh, that's incredibly witty. It's a tremendous show and um, available everywhere podcasts are. So folks, if you haven't gotten it downloaded, it, subscribe. It is a must listen to, particularly in this incredible era that we live in where we free speech and due process and uh, respect for the law and order is often in jeopardy. And uh, I think Alan does a great job with that. So you also have a book coming. I want to get to this because I want to forget this, but you've got a new book coming out, I think just before Thanksgiving called cancel culture the latest attack on free speech and due process what inspired you to write yet another great book
1: well the cancel culture is a direct frontal attack on not only freedom of speech it cancels those who they disagree with It doesn't cancel people who are the heroes of identity politics no matter what they've done they never get canceled and then it also cancels due process it doesn't matter whether you're innocent or guilty If you've been accused, you're canceled. I'll give you an example. The 92nd Street Y, which was the predominant place for intellectuals in New York to speak, particularly Jewish intellectuals. Um, I spoke there 25 times. I was the second most popular speaker after Elie Wiesel. As soon as I was falsely accused by a woman I never met. Uh, the 92nd Street Y canceled me. They said, we know you're innocent. We've seen the evidence. We've seen her emails that prove she never met you. But you've been accused. And we don't want to have you ever speak here again because it will cause trouble. That wow. reminds me, of when I was growing up, McCarthyism. Yeah. People who were accused may have been innocent, but they didn't want trouble. So they got canceled. And that's part of the cancel culture. When in doubt, cancel. Don't give the person an opportunity to prove his innocence. Don't prove that the people who have accused him are the guilty ones. Just cancel, cancel, cancel. That's what the culture does.
0: It's unbelievable. Uh, the, the The idea that someone's entitled to be presumed innocent, uh, entitled to their defense, has almost gone out the window, certainly in the court of public uh, opinion. In, but in even now maybe
1: presumed innocent is not enough. Uh, yeah. Even if you prove your innocence, even if there's a presumption of guilt, which you overcome and prove. Right. In my case, I have a tape recording by the accuser's lawyer admitting that she was wrong to accuse me and that I couldn't have been in the place that she claimed I was, that's not enough. It's not a presumption of innocence. It's an irrebuttable presumption of guilt that cannot be overcome by evidence.
0: It's, uh, it's unbelievable. And for folks, if you don't know what uh, Alan's referring to, this is a woman named Miss Jifra uh, who uh, was involved in the Epstein uh, situation. Uh, she accused falsely uh, Alan, of, of participating in some uh, activities and your, your point is you've never met her. Her lawyers admit you never met her and and yet you can't get the stain of her accusation from... from right,
1: and I'll from, give you another another example. Her own lawyer is David boys Right. David Boyce represented Al Gore in the Bush versus Gore. That's right, Al Gore was also accused by Juke Gouffre of being on Epstein's island with his wife. Turns out Al Gore never met Epstein, never heard of Epstein, was never on the island. All David Boyce had to do was call his old client, as I did, right, uh, his office, and say, "Al Gore, were you ever on Jeffrey Epstein's island?" "No, of course not." So in other words, Gouffre is lying. But but David. David Boies didn't even do that because he knew he's the lawyer I have on tape. He knew I didn't do it, but it didn't matter to him because there was money at stake. Mm. She was trying to get a billion dollars from Leslie Wexner using me as the stalking horse. And in the end, I got canceled as a result of it. And so I'm fighting back. They picked on the wrong innocent person. because <laughs> I have nothing to hide. I've lived an exemplary private life. I've right. never had sex with anybody other than my wife during the relevant time period. Right. So I'm fighting back, but it's, you know, it's costing me. And so what do I do when I fight back? I write a book. So I wrote a book called Cancel Culture.
0: Well, it's a must read. I can't wait for it to come out. I guess it comes out November 17th, I see here. So folks, right. I highly recommend you grab this book, as Professor Dershowitz uh, has been on the front lines for a long time before it was popular to fight for, uh, fight for free speech, going all the way back to the '60s and '70s. Talk a little bit, um, Alan, about how this has sort of come full circle. There was a there was an era in the '60s where liberals found their voices often canceled, um, yeah. and uh, often by the power of the government, the crushing power of the state. You're on mm-hmm. the front lines of that, and today it's it's there are still liberals being canceled for various reasons too. But there seems to be the reverse of it. A lot of it is liberals trying to cancel out conservative voices. Is there an irony to the evolution? Uh, And what what has led us to this moment?
1: Well, it's not an irony. It's a hypocrisy. Look, very few people actually believe in free speech for thee as well as for me. So (laughs) the liberals were in favor of free speech in the 60s because McCarthyism was, was not allowing the liberals to speak. Now that political correctness is not allowing conservatives to speak, suddenly there are many liberals who don't favor free speech and many conservatives who do a plague on both your houses, you know, be principled, support free speech for your enemies. In one of the articles I wrote, I talked about joining the first amendment club to get membership in the first amendment club. You have to actively support the right of people you strongly hate. If you're a Jew, you have to be out there supporting the right of Holocaust deniers to preach They're horrible evil in the court of public opinion. If you're African-American, you have to be out there being able to defend the Ku Klux Klan or anybody else's right of free speech. You have to be willing to support the free speech of your enemies. You have to buy into Voltaire's notion. I disagree with you, but I will defend to the death your right to express your views. How many people actually support that position? You can really count them on one hand.
0: Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard to, because there are these emotional issues. If, if you're a Jew or, and you've been wronged by the Holocaust and, and you're an African-American sure. who has, you know, family who were wronged by slavery and other things, it's hard to let go it's of those uh, emotional ties. But that's what the First Amendment was originally created to do. And uh, we're, we're in an era where that First Amendment seems to be on life support right now.
1: Um, no, university, it's worse than life support because its greatest vulnerability is on universities. And who point. are the university students? There are future leaders. For example, a very able journalist, Emily Bazelon, wrote a piece in the New York Times last weekend, which basically justified and glorified the efforts to try to repress free speech. The New York Times, the very same week, listed Angela Davis as one of the great, great heroes of America. Angela Davis was a Stalinist who tried desperately to prevent free speech and defended Stalin and Mao and all of those who suppressed free speech. And yet, She's now the hero of the New York Times. The New York Times has become part of the problem itself, and, because it suppresses free speech on its editorial pages that are not consistent with its own narrative.
0: Yeah, and we we saw uh, some high profile departures as a result of that of that censorship or suppression. Uh, and look suppression. at the NP-
1: look at NPR. NPR mm-hmm. won't report on the Hunter Biden uh, episode, yeah. even though we don't know whether it's true. As a voter. I'm a liberal Democrat. I've never voted for a Republican candidate for president. But I want to know whether that laptop belonged to Hunter Biden. I want to know whether the emails on it are authentic. And NPR won't tell me, even though it's government funded and it's supposed to be neutral. And Twitter won't tell me. And Facebook won't tell me because they don't like the politics and the way it would be misused against their candidate. Uh, I think we're entitled as voters to know. So we're, we're seeing free speech attacked from every corner from it's, the media, from the social media, from students, from liberals, you name it, we're seeing it attacked. And it's really, as you say, on life support.
0: It is It is a remarkable thing. And you have one of the great legal minds. And I've sat here for quite some time saying, how do we fix this? How do we fight this? What is the legal tact? What is the, you know, there's a societal tact, obviously, but uh, it has gotten so prevalent and so quickly furious. I mean, it's picked up in speed just in the last four or six weeks in ways I never would have imagined. Is there any recourse to to pushing this toothpaste back in the tube?
1: Well, I think, ironically, the newly emerging conservative 6-3 to Supreme Court will probably be more supportive of free speech than a current liberal Supreme Court. You know, back in the day, the great supporters of free speech were William O. Douglas, uh, Justice Black, Justice Goldberg, Justice Warren. Not today. Today, I suspect, I suspect... That Amy uh, Coney Barrett uh, will support free speech, maybe only because free speech today is a conservative cause. I don't know. Maybe out of deep principle. But Justice Scalia was a supporter of free speech oh, when he clearly. was on the Supreme Court, and uh, it's 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 a good thing we have conservatives today supporting free speech. You know, the test for them will be when it's the conservatives. Uh, who are suppressing free speech by liberals, let's see if they stick to yeah, their principles.
0: Yeah, if they stick to their principles. Well, that's the big question that your book raises, right? Which is, mm-hmm. can yep. we be principled even when it's not popular or personally satisfying to to be principled? And uh, yep. we're, in, we're in a moment where that's greatly challenged. Um, when you look out at the um, social media uh, players, Facebook and Twitter, with their extraordinary acts of censorship in the last few uh, months and weeks, Um, is there a claim? I've been thinking about this. Is there a claim that because their businesses basically are an interstate uh, commerce exchange of ideas, money's made where ideas are exchanged? Is there a claim under the interstate commerce clause? Is there a claim under the use of the fact that the internet uses our public airspace? Is there some claim that uh, a great lawyer could bring to challenge what they're doing?
1: Yes. I think even a pretty good lawyer could do it, um, <laughs> particularly under the provisions uh, that were enacted some years ago, exempting social media platforms right. from being sued for defamation. Because they're right? only Yeah, because they're only platforms. And if you're platforms and you don't engage in what publishers do, picking and choosing what you're going to publish, then you should be exempt. But now that Twitter and Facebook are picking and choosing And I'll give you an example. Um, YouTube uh, has a mark next to a a speech I made about how Israel um, has its right to exist was established by law, that it has great legal principles standing behind it. They indicated that was not appropriate for children. And so a lawsuit is now being brought, not by me, but by somebody else challenging. I'm I'm sorry, it's not uh, appropriate
0: for children to hear that there's a legal right for the existence of Israel? Right.
1: Right. Wow. Apparently, they have an algorithm. And the algorithm says when you deal with Israel and Palestine, it's so controversial and so disputed that maybe children shouldn't be able to hear it. But wow. And their claim is no human being made that decision. It was made by a machine. So there are challenges going on. I think the great First Amendment issues of the second quarter of the 21st century will be whether the Internet could be subject to Government controls. You know, as Winston Churchill once said about democracy, the First Amendment is the same thing. It may be the worst possible solution, except for all the others that have been tried over time. Um, (laughs) Would you rather have the current situation, or would you rather have the government telling Twitter and Facebook what they can say and what they can do? Hmm. Uh, NPR is a special case because it is a governmentally supported institution. And, uh, you know, I've always wondered whether there should be an NPR reporting the news. There should be, obviously, public support for the arts, for neutral aspects, but should the government really be in the business of telling us how to watch the news and what should be on the news? You know, that's Pravda, and we don't want Pravda in America. So, you know, libertarians, and I think of myself as a libertarian, are really facing great challenges uh, today, and uh, we have to stick to our principles, and we have to fight harder than ever For free speech and due process, which are the hallmarks of any free society. It was Justice Frankfurter who once said that the history of liberty is a history of due process, a history of procedures, a history of process itself. You know, you, you never can be assured when you have due process what the end result is going to be. And we as libertarians ought to be more concerned with the process than with the end result. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some. There's going to be an election. Maybe my candidate will win. Maybe my candidate will lose. The key is that the election is fair. We'll have a debate. Maybe I'll win. Maybe I'll lose. The key is that we all have the right to express our free speech. There'll be a trial. Maybe my client will win. Maybe we'll lose. But the key is that there's due process, and that's what we have to defend.
0: Do you worry uh, about uh, the culture of a generation? The millennials seem to be a generation where the ends justify the means and the due process isn't as important as it used to be. Is there a generational disconnect in, in, the, in the very arguments that you so eloquently make?
1: No doubt. And read Emily Bazelon's piece in The New York Times, and you'll see that generational issue. The Millenniums know the truth with a capital T. Um, It's like they were on Sinai and God (laughs) delivered to them the uh, the 78 commandments that they now have. They know the truth. Why do you need to give the other side a chance to express its lies when we know the truth? We know the truth. If a woman accuses a man, of course she's telling the truth. And of right. course the man is lying. What do you need due process? That's a waste of time. Not only is it a waste of time, but it involves attacking the accuser. Oh, my God. Criticizing the accuser. Victimizing the victims again. That's what due process is about. You can't accuse somebody of something without subjecting yourself to due process, which is the greatest engine for determining the truth ever invented. And so, Yes. The millennium generation is impatient with process. They want to get to the truth. They don't have to get to it. They know it. They know it. They know know it's based on identity. They know that Martin Luther King was wrong when he said, I want my children to be judged by the quality of their character rather than the color of their skin. No! The millenniums want you to be judged by the color of your skin, by your sexual orientation, by where you come from, uh, by what your politics are. Not by your character. That's meritocracy. Meritocracy is a filthy, dirty word. In my book on cancel culture, I have a whole chapter on how cancel culture is canceling meritocracy. It's crazy, it's isn't it? It's substituting identity politics for meritocracy. They mm-hmm. want to abolish grades. How did I become a well-known lawyer? I came from a family. Nobody went to college. Nobody was educated. Right. I finished first in my class on an objective testing system. That's how I became editor-in-chief yeah. of the A.L. Law Journal. How did Ruth Bader Ginsburg get on the Supreme Court? She finished first in her class, a Jewish woman from Brooklyn on the Supreme Court of the United States. Pretty you know, She once asked a question. I had lunch with her. She said, what's the difference between a bookkeeper in the garment district and a Supreme Court justice? And the answer was one generation. and uh, that was her mother she only made it through meritocracy and yet although she is a paragon and she should be of the liberal cause the way she made it is regarded as against the current train of thought don't you don't make it on meritocracy you make it on your identity on who you are we don't listen to you because you have better ideas we listen to you because of what your race is what your gender is what your sexual orientation is Other than that, if you're a white male, shut up. Who wants to hear you? Albert Einstein? Who's interested in Albert Einstein? He was a white Jewish male. Forget about it. We'd rather listen to some obscure person who has the right racial and ethnic and identity characteristics. That's the future unless we stop it.
0: The um, petri dish of this experience of substituting meritocracy Uh, with identity politics. Where did it begin? Where is the lab where all of this was born that an entire generation got indoctrinated to think this way?
1: In universities following the Vietnam War, and it was developed through a concept called intersectionality, um, which says that all oppressed people, except Jews and Zionists, uh, but most oppressed people are oppressed by exactly the same people, white, male, colonial, etc., 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 And um, and we all have all the oppressed people have to get together so that uh, Muslims have to get together with gay people, even though uh, in Muslim dominated countries around the world, not all, uh, they oppress gay people. In Iran, they hang and throw them off the roof. But intersectionality, people say, no, no, if you're Muslim and you're gay, uh, you have to get together because your identity politics pushes you in that direction. It's absurd. It's not scholarship. It's advocacy and it's propaganda, but it's caught on in universities. And if you look at what's going on in universities today, the courses that are being taught are unbelievable. They're not courses. You know, 50 years I taught at Harvard, I never expressed a private opinion in my classroom. I did outside the classroom, of course. My job was to teach the students not what to think, but how to think, how to analyze problems and how to debate all sides of an issue, and how to intellectually focus on how to get to the truth. Right. I didn't try to teach my students what the truth was. That's up to them. They come to the class with backgrounds, religious backgrounds, political backgrounds, moral backgrounds. I'm not trying to change that. I'm trying to, if they're a conservative, I want to make them a better conservative. If they're a liberal, I want to make them a smarter liberal. That was my job as a teacher. No more. Today it's propaganda, it's ideology, and if you don't express the ideology of the teacher... You're not going to get the recommendation. You're going to be graded down, and you're going to be discriminated against. That's just not right.
0: Do you have a solution? First, first off, who are the who are the movers and shakers that got a hold of this system? Is there foreign influence? Is there just ideologues? How did you know the mass vast majority of our universities become this indoctrinated oriented rather than truth seeking oriented?
1: Yeah, it's you know kind of left wing. Fa- People who were active in the anti-Vietnam movement, I was too, but I was as liberal, not as a radical. And so what you found was when those people became professors and dominated, they began to focus on the Noam Chomsky approach, on Norman Finkelstein, on some of the others. And, you know, they bought into the whole notion of you don't need dissent on campus, all you need is... To apply the same rules in my book, I quote scholar after scholar. Um, They're not really scholars; they're they're propagandists (laughs) and advocates who push this position on college campuses, and they've pushed it quite successfully.
0: Well, it's it is remarkable to see, and I've interviewed a lot of young students who who um, can't separate what their professors told them from their own value system, and and that's a scary moment when we've we've handicapped young people from being able to exercise their own. Uh, value system because they're fearful they won't get the grade they won't get the graduation they won't get the recommendation they won't
1: get the friends or they won't get the friends a friend you know peer pressure is enormous as well on college campuses look what happened to ron sullivan here is a great professor the first african-american to become the dean of a college at harvard college and he gets fired because of student pressure because he dared to represent harvey weinstein Mm. He wasn't his friend, right? he was his lawyer. Yep. And the students said they were afraid, they were, they were in fear, they were scared to be in the same room as as Ron Sullivan because mm. of who his client was. They weren't scared a year earlier when he represented a double murderer who right. was convicted of double murder. That didn't scare them. Mm. But Harvey Weinstein, because he was their lawyer, that scared them. I mean, and and the faculty falls for this, and Harvard fired the guy unbelievably
0: yeah no there's no, no no merit for i mean the, the, we've created a system where people are entitled to good representation even in the most heinous of, of criminal course, situations of and john it
1: just, adams john adams represented the people who were responsible right. for the massacre, massacre the boston massacre and you mm-hmm. know he ultimately became president though we lost a lot of friends in the process as i have you know i'm on martha's vineyard now and I'm trying to stay away from people because of the coronavirus. <laughs> it's very easy because nobody wants to talk to me. Wow. I've lost 15 pounds on what I call the Trump diet because I defended <laughs> the president on the floor of the Senate. Right. Nobody invites me to dinner. So I'm in the best health I've been in a long time.
0: <laughs> I guess you have something to thank your critics for in a, in a strange, twisted way. Um, We've talked about the universities. We've talked about the social media giants. We've talked about the millennial generation. I want to talk about my profession, um, yeah. <clears throat> journalism, because I think it's a big perpetrator in this moment in history. You're you're a, a, a voracious reader. You're so well studied. You've, you've watched the media for 50, 60 years of your career. Um, what is right and wrong with the media today?
1: What's right is those few... Uh, journalistic endeavors that really separate opinion from fact. I think the Wall Street Journal is getting it right. I think the New York Times is losing its place in history. It is no longer the newspaper of record. It is no longer highly respected as being objective. It now places its opinions on the front page. It's called news analysis. It's not news analysis. It's opinion. And it uh, limits its op-ed pages to people who essentially – agree with it. Whereas the Wall Street Journal, I think, has had a much, much clearer separation of editorial policy from the news.
0: Yeah, that's a great a great but point. But today,
1: Walter Cronkite couldn't get a job on television.
0: Isn't that amazing? Nobody
1: wants to hear objective, neutral, nuanced, calibrated Uh, reports. Everybody wants to hear, are you for the Red Sox or the Yankees? Uh, What team are you on? Uh, Either Trump is the worst president who's never done anything right, or he's the greatest man who ever set foot on the earth. You can't get a balanced assessment. When I try to go on television and say, look, Trump has done some good things. Uh, The Middle East has been a great success. On the other hand, his policies toward health care, they don't want that. I never forget getting a call once from NPR saying, we'd like to have you on about this and this issue. Which side are you on? And I said, look, here's my position. They said, no, 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 we're not interested. That's a middle ground position. We want you to take a strong position one side or the other. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah, And that's NPR. We're we're staging
0: theater. We're no longer doing news, we're staging theater. That's absolutely And the New York Times
1: is at the center of it. They are the primary villain in this regard because they've turned from being a newspaper of record to a newspaper of partisan politics
0: it's so hard for me to say or even hear that but I agree with it now because I've watched you know one of the great institutions of journalism pick one side over the other and not even not even to pretend any longer it, it, it's in in one camp and that's it um, this question comes up I, The last question we'll get to because I know you, you got to get rolling Um New York Times versus Sullivan is, of course, the monumental case that set the libel laws for the last 50, 60 years of American history. When you look at the fact that so many articles were published about Donald Trump and Russia collusion that turned out to be blatantly false based on a document that was, you know, remotely uh, garbage. I mean, it was, you know, the intelligence community knew what it was and used it. Is there a moment here where that the standards of libel and and, uh, legal recourse Could be changed. You see people like Devin Nunez suing. I'm not sure whether he's going to have any luck. But is there a standard where even people of public figures have an opportunity to get some of their reputation back? I mean, you're a great example, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm suing CNN as now because CNN doctored a tape. Wow. Um, I was on the floor of the Senate. Everybody could see it. Right. I was on the floor of the Senate, and I said, if the president commits a crime, does anything unlawful, he can be impeached. But if it's a completely lawful quid pro quo, just because he wanted to be elected president and thought that was in the national interest, that is not impeachable. They doctored the tape to take out all references to illegal wow. and had me saying a president can do anything he wants to get elected as long as he thinks it's in the national interest. And I'm suing him. Um Under New York Times versus Sullivan... Because there they did it with malice. They did it deliberately. It came from the very top. They doctored the tape with an intention to make me say the opposite of what I said.
0: It's it's breathtaking. Do do you think the courts will create a new standard in this era of social media? I mean, obviously, the standard was created in a time where uh, you didn't have 5,000 amplifications within a second of something coming out about you. It's hard to get it back because it moves at such speed now and it's such okay. with it, your reputation never comes back. I still have people that, you know, have asked me about things that someone said, I didn't even know they said it. And you know, got through social media, and, and you find out about it six months later, and like, how did that, you know, that's not even true. I can prove it's not true. Um,
1: doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you can prove. It was yeah. Winston Churchill who once said, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth can get its shoes on. Today, you can't <laughs> even find your shoes. It goes yeah. around the world so quickly, and there's no way of, undoing it. The accusation appears on the front page. The apology appears in the bottom of page 23. Exactly, Often And there days have later. to be ways of remedying it. One of the proposals I've made is to create a Me Too court, an informal court of, say, former retired judges or justices right. who would be able to hear a case if you've been falsely accused, as I have. You bring the case to the court, you present your evidence, and then they come to three possible verdicts, guilty, not guilty, or inconclusive. But at least you have access to an institution. Right now, there's no institution that's prepared to listen to claims of innocence if the, uh, if the, if the, if the accuser is a woman. So um, uh, we, we need to have process in place so that a fairness and, and, and an ability to overcome the, the current presumption of guilt can operate. And so I'm pushing in that direction, too.
0: That's it's, a, it's a, a a must needed conversation for many reasons and you know right right now it's men being accused by women but this modality will change and yeah. once we become a country of mob rule uh, and the process of uh, due process is thrown out the window any any cause can can take by emotion and sure. I think that's what's so so critical to what you, you the very important words you speak every day on your podcast the, um, uh, the Dur Show and uh, Cancer culture the book all the things you're doing. Do you feel optimistic about the future or are you pessimistic about the future? Uh,
1: you know, in Israel, they say a pessimist is somebody who says, oh, things are so bad, they can't get worse. And an optimist says, yes, they can. <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm an optimist uh, yes, in the are. sense that I think things could get worse. But I do think, I believe with Martin Luther King that the arc of justice may be slow, but it moves in the direction of justice. And I hope that we'll get out of this period uh, of repression. And, you know, I hate when these people call themselves progressives, when they are among the most regressive people imaginable. Uh, And I hope we'll grow out of that age. And I hope our next generation will see much more virtue in the uh, traditional values of free speech and due process.
0: I, I can count myself an optimist, too. And I hope my greatest hope is that our children's children's children just hear what you said, because your wisdom is worth passing generations down. You have been a, such an eloquent voice, Alan, in, in the public space for so long and a voice of reason. And whether it was on liberal issues, conservative issues, you've had a, a consistency that should be admired in America. And so on behalf of all our great listeners, thank you for all that you do to, to speak wisdom to a population that's awful and tangled in motion.
1: Oh, thank you so much. And it's such an honor to be on with you. I've been a long admirer of your honesty and your directness. So thanks again for having me on.
0: Thank you, Alan. Good luck with the book. All right, folks, we're going to come right back and wrap things up in a few seconds. Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax friendly way to preserve your charitable giving in times of crisis. Dotis Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Just News for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org justnews Just News. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alan Dershowitz as much as I did. He's an absolute uh, brilliant man with a lot to say. And what gives him such street creds is he's a liberal that will defend a conservative when due process, free speech, the First Amendment calls for it. He has stood up for people who were canceled many times in his career. This was just one of many examples and i hope you uh, enjoyed that time with him be sure to go to justinnews.com check out those stories i told you about the audio tapes possibly coming out about hunter biden the newt gingrich video breaking down the biden scandal making some sense of it and of course my exclusive was my colleague seamus brunner yeah the same guy that wrote our book uh together we wrote the book together fallout uh we've got a new exclusive story about hunter biden burisma ukraine and Hunter Biden's big lament in 2017 that the gravy train at Ukraine's Burisma might be coming to an end for him. All right, you've been listening to John Solomon Reports, a podcast from just the news.com. Thank you. We'll be back soon with another edition. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite. Angie's List is now Angie, A-N-G-I, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And they're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project is, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done. Well, that's what you want, right? I'm uh, thinking about building out my basement in my cabin. I've been perusing Angie looking for just the right contractor to get it done the way my wife and I want it done. Now Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and right in your neighborhood. That's important, right? You can do comparative shopping. Get started today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I or download the app today. The app and the website are free to use. Angie.com or the Angie app. Go check it out today.